context, particularly with the, the, uh, the, the involvement of our military, we are losing many of our young people monthly, weekly, daily. You may know people uh, in your realm of, of relationships that have lost a loved one to the military, and if that's true, it's a great time uh, to really reach out to them with phone call, prayers, other aspects of ministry into their lives. So be aware of that. Is there anybody in our church today that has lost a loved one to the military? Anybody here? If you're here, would you stand? Do we have anybody here? We have one here. Thank you, sir. I'm not sure who the relationship is, but thank you for your loved one that served. What's that? I'm sorry. World War, uncle in World War II. Praise God. Thank you. Let's just pray for him. Lord Jesus, we pray for all of our families across our nation that have had loved ones who have given their life, that sacrificed themselves so that freedom could continue, not only in our nation, but in the nations that they have fought in. And Lord Jesus, we pray for the families that have been left behind. We ask that your blessings of healing and grace will come into their homes, whether it was just last week or it's been a couple years. We just pray for that in their families, that as they are remembered, they would be remembered with grace, that your presence would be there in their homes, ministering to their hearts, bringing comfort and bringing life back to them again. And we thank you for this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we've been going through the book of Colossians. Uh, we've, we're still in the chapter 1. And so far, what we've seen is Paul doing the usual thing he usually does in all of his letters. He introduces himself to who he's, who he's writing to. He then addresses the people with whom he is speaking. He builds this church up by highlighting their faith in Jesus Christ and their love for God's people. He then moves to a prayer that he is praying for them, as he often did with every church that he wrote to. And in this prayer, he prays that they will bear fruit in all they do, that they will grow in the knowledge of God, that they will find their strength in God. And finally, he, he admonishes them to, find their, uh, to rejoice because God has forgiven them. Something that we all should be thanking God for every day. And he concludes with uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 12 through 14. And it says this, In giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, up to this point, he has been highlighting the Father and his communication with the church at Colossae. And now he's shifting from, from the Father to the Son. He's going to begin to highlight his Son, Jesus Christ. And in the verses we will be looking at today, the section of Scripture that we'll be looking at today, he really highlights the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And that is the theme of our message today. Uh, we'll be looking through verses 15 through 23. They knew Jesus... They had heard about Jesus, but they were a young church, and their knowledge of, of Christ was limited. So he's going to expand on that understanding. And he hits one of the most important aspects of Jesus Christ, and that's his supremacy, supremacy in the world. Uh, he is the supreme one over all things. 
In fact, in this passage, that word all is used nine times, just in this short passage, just to illustrate and validate the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And in this passage, he will highlight three specific areas. And so the first one we're going to look at is the supremacy of Christ in creation. The supremacy of Christ in creation. And we pick it up in chapter 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. There's that word all. He brings out two aspects that are really important for the church to hear and for us to hear as well. The Son is the image of the invisible God. That's, that's a huge topic, one that we could spend months on in, in talking about. But he is the image of the invisible God. The Greek word that's used here is the word icon. And yes, it's the word that we get our English word icon from. And most Greek words in the Greek language have a specific meaning. In other words, they can only be used in one context because it's that specific. But this word icon is, is a bit different. It's uh, really like a, like a homony in the English language. And a homony is a word that is spelled the same, it sounds the same, but it can be used in different contexts. Like the word right, R-I-G-H-T. If you drive down the road and you make a right-hand turn, you're speaking about direction with right. Same spelling, same, same, uh, same, uh, uh, same, sorry, same spelling and same verbiage. And you take that same word right, R-I-G-H-T, and you say, that answer that you gave was right. Now he's talking about correct. It really depends on the context of how it's being used. And this word icon is the same thing. Uh, in a very simple form, uh, Jesus used it when they came to him and questioned him about, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Remember what he said? He said, Send me, show me a coin whose image is on that. That's the word he used, icon. And what he meant was, in a physical sense, what does that image look like? And they said, of course, Caesar. And we know the rest of the story. So in a very simple form, it can be used. But in context to what he's speaking about here, there's two, there's two ways in which it is being used. The first one is exact likeness, not in physical appearance, but in essence, exactly reflecting its source, likeness. The second way it's being used by Paul is exact manifestation, perfectly manifesting all of the attributes of the invisible God. And that second definition is the one we want to hold on to. And that concept is supported by a couple of other scriptures that we want to look at. There are many scriptures that support uh, the invalidate uh, the, Jesus Christ being God. And the first one is this in Hebrews 1.3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. The exact, exact representation of his being. And get this. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's Jesus Christ he's speaking about. Not only is he the exact representation of the Father, the exact representation because of the same, but he sustains the universe by the writer's powerful word. That's a definition of God, because I don't, I don't know anybody that can do that, even if you can do a thousand push-ups. You are not strong enough to do what God is doing. Second verse is in John chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. 
Uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's telling them that he's going home to be with the Father. And Philip poses this question in verse 8. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even, a, even after I have been among you such, uh, such a long time? And here's the key verse, here's the key point. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And if you, if you go into the Greek wording of that, it is very exact. In other words, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. It's not a reflection. It's not a, uh, a, a substitute. It is the same, the exact same thing. So he is God. That's the concept that he's trying to get across to the Colossians, and that's exactly what he's trying to get across to us. Jesus Christ is God. The second point that's important from this verse is he's the firstborn over all creation. Now, we get confused sometimes with that word firstborn. We think, that that's, does that mean that Jesus was created because he's firstborn? That they're using that definition to describe him? Uh, no, it doesn't. Again, there are two uh, Greek words that are often used, that are used with firstborn. One is prototokos, and the other one is prototikos. Prototikos is used when you're describing natural birth by a mother. That's firstborn. A, a woman who would have five or six children, she'd point to the one that was firstborn, and she says, that's my prototikos, my firstborn. Natural birth. The other one is prototokos, and that has a totally different meaning. It means first in place of order, time, possession, or rank. In the, in the ancient culture of that day, the firstborn son inherited the father's estate. That was true in that culture, in the, in, the, in the heathen culture, and it was true in the Jewish culture. If the father was king, uh, that meant that the firstborn son was the next in line to be king. And if the, if the father died in some form, the son took over the whole realm. It was theirs. What they were talking about is that all things belonged to them by right. It was their privilege and their place. It belonged to the firstborn. And so what Paul is doing with calling Jesus the firstborn of creation, he's basically using a, a, a term that everybody in that culture would understand, including the Gentiles. And he's saying he is over all creation because that is his right, that is his place, that is his privilege. That is where he belongs, over all creation. He is supreme. Colossians 1, 16 through 17 follows that thought. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. There are some powerful points that I want to bring out from this passage because they really validate the fact that he is really supreme over all creation. First one was that he was before all things. And what that indicates, as you may clearly understand yourself, is that he was before creation. In the beginning was Jesus. He was there before anything else was created, along with the Father and the Son that make up the triune God. He was before all things. He's always been there, always will be there. He was before. 
All things, second point, all things were created by him. The book of John, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 3 says that. Through him all things were made. And without him nothing was made that was made. That's pretty clear, isn't it, church? He is the creator. Now, together with the, the, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, they designed it, they thought it through. It was their whole idea how the universe would look, how it would operate, how people would be born and, and be in his image. Everything was thought through him. But it was Jesus who spoke the world into existence by the word of his mouth. It was Jesus who said, let there be, and there was. It was Jesus who did those very acts by the word of his mouth. Third point is that all things are held together by him. All things. That, that, that thought is brought out again out of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, which we just looked at. He sustains all things by his powerful word. Just by the word of the Lord, things are held together, church. If Jesus took a day off, we'd be in trouble. If he took a moment off, we would be in trouble. Because he's the one that holds it all together. Scientists can tell you this and that about it, and they're absolutely right because they're using the very principles that Jesus created. But what they don't answer is who, who holds that all together? You understand the principles in science, but who is the one that holds it? Well, the one who holds it all together is the one who designed it and created it in the first place. And the last point that comes out of this scripture is that all things were created for him. All things were created. All things were created for Jesus. What, does Jesus have an ego problem? No, not at all. They belong to him, though. He's not just the author, the designer. He's the one that created it. He created the very substance that made things real. He created it out of nothing. That's our God. That's our Jesus. And so because of that very reason, he owns the universe. Think about that for a minute. Let it get deep into your spirit. Because what does that mean to us practically? He is the owner of it all. It was his very plan from the very beginning to have a world that was created with a purpose of human beings living in this planet, enjoying the realities of all that he created, but also living out a life that was designed by him for good. So that there, would, there wouldn't be a problem with war. We wouldn't have to have memorial days. We wouldn't have to deal with the brokenness that we prayed about in Texas and in Buffalo, New York, and other locations where there's disasters happening in America. We wouldn't have to pray about the Ukraine or raise up funds for a convoy of hope to go there because under Jesus' control, that would not be happening. But we know the problem. Sin came into the world, and because it did, it really destroyed and really set uh, in motion a different direction that God had designed our world for. But it still belongs to him. And in the end, he is supreme over all of it. The second thing that, he, that they speak about is the supremacy of Christ, supremacy of Christ in the new creation, verses 18 through 20. Let's read that passage. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, 
so that in everything he might have supremacy. supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He is supreme over the new creation. He's supreme over the old creation, but he's also supreme over the new creation. And what is new creation? Well, it began with the new covenant. It began with the church, because the very first act of the new creation was creating an atmosphere where people could be made new again, born again, as you will. That his spirit, which never dwelt inside people in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, now lives and resides inside people, his church. And the church was his first act. And so he is head over the church and supreme ruler of the church. And why is that? Well, four things that we can take from this passage. First, it says that he was in the beginning, just like in creation. He was in the beginning. And because he was in the beginning, he was there as God, the designer, the architect, and the builder of our universe. And it's the same thing is true with the church. You see, the church didn't exist at one point. But he birthed the church on the day of Pentecost. He created it. It was his plan. He gave it life, and he sustains it just like he does the universe by his powerful word. That is our Jesus. We often see him on the cross, and that's okay. We, 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 so, we live in an atmosphere of gratitude because of that. We also see him in the resurrection, the glorified body, now risen Lord. That's, that's the place where he is now. But he's, but he's more than just those things, as powerful and wonderful as those are. That's just an aspect of his life and a gift to this planet. But he is God Almighty, supreme over all creation and over his church as well. Uh, verse 18, it says that he is the firstborn from among the dead, and there's that word again, prototokos. Firstborn. What does it mean by in this passage? Well, we need to catch the, the phrase first more, firstborn from among the dead, from, from away from the dead. I know some people are saying, well, no, he's not the first one to be resurrected. There's other people in the Old Testament and New Testament that were resurrected from the dead. Lazarus, for instance. Well, there's a difference. You see, uh, Jesus was uh, resurrected from among the dead. Lazarus was resurrected back to the dead. When he was resurrected, he went back to his old body, right? He went back to a broken world that was still dead in sin. Uh, that was the world that he came back to. He died again, Lazarus. So his body wasn't a body that could sustain life. It died like all of our bodies will one day, unless Jesus returns. But Jesus, when he was resurrected, he was resurrected into a glorified body that will never die. It will never have pain. It will never have sickness. It is perfect in every way. And that's a body that we will one day receive as well from the promise of God's word. But he had it first. So he is the firstborn in, in, in the way of place. He has the first place in that. And because he conquered death, and because he conquered sin, and because he conquered so many other things of the brokenness of our world, he follows up with this statement, so that in everything he might have supremacy. 
the reason that he's God Almighty, the reason that he has supremacy over everything is because he has conquered everything. There is nothing too great for Jesus. There's nothing more powerful than him. There's nothing that can stand against him. One day, every power and authority, including human, human governments, and every one of us will one day bow our knee to his supremacy. That's what the word of God tells us. In verse 19, it said, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Again, Paul is just emphasizing the fact that uh, he's not just God of creation, but he's also God of the church. He is supreme. Verse 20 says, And through him, that is Jesus, to reconcile himself to himself all things. See, this is the end of um, being, uh, being supreme over the new creation. Because one day, that word reconciliation can be restored. It, uh, it also means full restoration, full reconciliation. All things will be restored back to the original plan. One day we will have a new heaven and a new earth. But the reason why that's there is because that he made peace through his blood shed on the cross. That was the beginning. When he went to the cross and died, he died not just for the sins of the world, but all the effects that that sin did damage to not only the human race, but to the creation itself. And it tells us in Corinthians that creation is longing and groaning for the day when they will be restored as well. Interesting passage. But one day it's, the Bible promises that because of Jesus' work on the cross, everything will be made new. Everything. It'll all be restored to the original plan. And because of that reason, he is supreme over the new creation that hasn't quite fully been fully realized yet, but it's getting there. And we're part of that, church. We are the beginning part of that new creation. That's what it tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 5, verse 17. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. That's what he designed for all of us. Third aspect, the supremacy of Christ in reconciliation. And we pick that up in verse 21 and 23 of Colossians. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in the faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard and it has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Two points here. Verse 21, what was our past tense, past state? We were alienated from God, enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. That was where we were at one time. But our present state, if you invited Jesus Christ into your life as your Lord and Savior, you have surrendered your life to him, this is the state that we now live in. We have been, first of all, reconciled with God. We, an open-door relationship that we can enter into any time of the day. What a privilege. What a privilege, especially in light of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We recognize that he is over everything, and everything is subject to him. 
What an amazing thing that the God of the universe, Almighty God, would say, listen, the door's open, come talk to me anytime. We can just sit together and chat. We can talk about problems in your life. If you've blown it, we can, we can talk about forgiveness and repentance. If there's an area in your life that needs growth, then we can talk about grace. If there's needs in your life, we can talk about those. We can talk about anything. What do you want to talk about? Man, so many of us long for relationships like that. I wish I had a girlfriend. wish I had a boyfriend. wish I had this. wish I had that in relationships. wish I had people that loved me and cared for me. Listen, church, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, almighty God is saying, come talk to me. I'm right here. You don't have to be lonely. I will direct you to people in your life. I will direct you to other issues, places where you can find the things that you're looking to, but find your sufficiency, first of all, in me. Look what he says. We, not only have we been reconciled to God, but we've, we've been made holy in his sight. Listen, you can talk to my wife and she'll tell you I'm not holy. Anybody that knows me real well knows that's not true, that there's, I'm still growing. I still make mistakes, bad choices at times. Sometimes I choose selfishness instead of love. Sometimes I choose pride instead of humility. Man, those things are in my life. But when God sees me, when he sees you, Jesus is... Chuck, come on up here, would you, brother? Now, Chuck isn't Jesus, okay? (laughs) This is just a picture. But I'm using Chuck (laughs) because... I'm not the holy. (laughs) Chuck, stand here. Stand here in front of me. Okay. Listen, when he's, without Jesus, this is what he sees. Bob McKay's and Catholics, faults and failures and bad choices and all kinds of junk. But when I invite Jesus Christ into my life, mm-hmm. you can't see <laughs> I'm glad I got a big friend like Chuck. <laughs> but Jesus is even bigger. Amen. He is so big that they don't see anything, not even a shadow of us. Amen. They see Chuck representing Jesus. They mm-hmm. see, he sees Jesus. Mm-hmm. And Jesus was perfect. Chuck, thank you, friend. Right. That was pretty impromptu, so I'm glad Chuck was open to that. <laughs> they see Jesus. When the Father looks at us, we are holy. We are completely holy. Not because of us but because of Jesus. That's what they see. We are without blemish. How's that, church? I've got plenty of spiritual blemishes in my life. It's better than acne cream, let me tell you. The blood of Jesus washes the blemishes away. Completely. We are free from accusation. It doesn't, you know, free from accusation. We are free from the devil's accusations. We are free from our family's accusations. We are free from our accusations. Every accusation out there doesn't hold, hold, hold water because Jesus dealt with the accusations on the cross. He took the accusations. Those accusations can be true. We have done the things they accuse us of, the words we may have spoken, But because of Jesus, it's washed clean. And just like we showed with Chuck, the accusations are no more. All these are a work of God's grace, church. 
They are a work of his grace. But they do come with a warning. That warning has a big word called if. If we continue in the faith and don't move away from the hope that we hold on to. So let's hold on to our faith. Let's don't let anything take us away from it, persuade us away from it, urge us away from it. Let's hold on to our faith. I'm going to ask Chuck, uh, James to come up. We could go on and on this morning from this passage because there are so many rich things that come out of it. But I hope we caught a glimpse this morning of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The greatness of that. We need God to help us see it. But the question is, what do we do with it? It's one thing to hear something. It's one thing to even in our minds acknowledge it. But what do we do with it? What do I do with the knowledge that Jesus is the supreme ruler and owner of the universe, the church, and my life? What am I going to do with that? Because what you believe about that will determine how you live. It'll, it'll determine your destiny. It'll, be, it'll determine what you come out of so that you can become what he created you to be. But I've got to make a choice. What am I going to do with this knowledge? What's the practical application for our lives? Well, there's a couple things. First of all, the Jesus who can who sustains the whole universe by his word, who sees every sparrow that drops out of the sky. He doesn't miss anything, church. I think he's capable of helping us pay our grocery bill this month. How about that? Think that's possible? I think it is. And it's also possible that he helps us with anything else in our life that would be a challenge for us or that's bigger than us whether it's in relationships or anything else. We heard a prophecy this morning about forgiveness. Church, that is so important because we will not move further in our life if we've got the baggage of a, of a wounded, bitter, unforgiving relationship in our life. It'll be a chain around our ankle that won't let us go forward. We may want to, you may desire to, but if we're not able to forgive... And you may have tried, you may have tried to work it out. Don't let it be a bondage in your life. Because as a God who has grace to give you, God knows how to forgive. He has spent over 6,000 years dealing with wounded relationships towards him. Animosity, using his name as a swear word. He knows what it's like to be offended. He knows what it's like to be wounded but he has forgiven everyone. You see, forgiveness to the world is not a matter of person. If it was, up, if it was just a personal thing, Jesus would forgive just everybody. But he's the, he's the judge of the universe. And so it's a, it's a judicial issue with God. There has to be a turn from sin. There has to be a faith applied to the gift that he's given. That's the only way it can work. Paul admonished the Colossians, as well as he did many other churches that he wrote to, to grow in the knowledge of God. And that is so important for us. This, this passage that Paul wrote to the, to the Colossians, it's, it's a very 
few passages talking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, but there's so much more to learn about him. I've often told people that God is like an iceberg. What you see on top is true underneath, but there's just a whole lot more underneath. What's on top is true about what's underneath, but there's much, much more, and God is bigger than an iceberg. But, but it's so important that we get to know God because our faith will only be as large as our God. How, how, how big is God to you? How big is your Jesus? Your faith will only be as big as he is. What you've learned about him, what you've grown to know about him, what you've allowed for him to reveal in your life. How about peace? Do you want peace in your life? How big is your God? That's how big your peace will be. What about joy? You want joy in your life? How big is your God? How big is Jesus? Because your joy will be as big as he is in your life. That's why we got to get to know him. That's why we need to respond to him in times of trial and difficulty. Times when we are being pressed. Because once we realize that Jesus, once all, all that we have left is Jesus, we'll find out that he is enough to be the God of your life. But we've got to let him step in. We've got to let him take control. When Pastor Ben, when he, his last message here, he spoke about three groups of people, and I want to look at that real fast. First group of people that spiritually in our society is, is, is people that really haven't come into that relationship with Jesus Christ yet. You've heard about him. People may have talked to you about it, but you've resisted and said, you know what, I don't really need that in my life. But maybe right now today as you're in church, you're realizing it's not a matter just of I need him. He really has a right to my life because he's God Almighty. He created me. I really belong to him. But he's not going to make me follow him. But if I want life, the life that he designed, it's only possible if I will. So friends, if you're here this morning and you've never asked Jesus Christ into your life, there isn't a better opportunity than this morning. And I want to give you that opportunity today. At times we've asked people to close their eyes and pray, but today I'm just going to ask you to stand. If you're in that position, you say, well, man, I'm not, not, not everybody, sorry. Just those that are, just those that are wanting, wanting to invite Jesus Christ into their life. You know he's there. You know he's real. There may be times in your life when you sense his presence. But you haven't come to a place where you've said, you know what, I need to stop the way I'm living. And I need to trust in what he did on the cross. I don't understand all of it, but I'm willing to believe that he can make me into a new person. Uh, we're not here to embarrass you. You're among friends. You're among family, in fact. If you would stand today, you would have these people cheering for you, not making fun of you. But if you're here today and you'd like to invite Jesus Christ into your life because it's never happened, but you realize it needs to happen in my life, I'm just going to invite you to stand just so that we can see you and we can begin to pray with you. Anybody here in that place? Can't see it. Yeah, okay. Okay. I trust that all of you have made that decision. If you haven't, don't hold back. Don't let it pass. 
after church see one of our pastors and just say, you know what, I need, I need to make that step. I need to make that step because it won't happen until it's there. Second thing, uh, Pastor Ben talked about middle, middle of the road believers, those who kind of sit on the fence. They've got one foot in the world, one foot in, in they're following Jesus, and they're thinking they're okay because you've invited Jesus in your life as your Savior, but he's not really the Lord of your life, not all of it. There are things that you're holding back. You want to enjoy the pleasures of the world and still have the benefits of, of, of Jesus Christ. It will not work. I've walked that road before as a young believer. Believe me, it will not work. You see, because on the left side is the world of the fence, on the right side of the fence is Jesus and his kingdom. And if you're trying to straddle the fence, Jesus isn't in control. You are. And I've talked with many people in that position, and I hear them say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to church is boring, following Jesus, I read the Bible, but nothing comes out, I have problems, and nothing gets fixed. But the reason it's not getting fixed is because you're still in control on top of the fence. You see, if, if you want Jesus to work in your life, you have to give up your life first. You have to give it up to him. You won't take control of your life. He will take it if you give it to him. And so if you're on top of that fence thinking, okay, you know, does that mean that, it doesn't mean that he will abandon you. It doesn't mean he won't love you because he always will love you. It just means that you're going to have trouble in your life. Nothing will work. You'll be frustrated. You'll be empty. You'll be thinking, I've got to get something else in my life. No. You need to jump off the fence onto the right side and let Jesus have total, complete control. Because when you do, then Jesus will begin to work. He'll begin to work out the frustrations in your life and the issues that you're working through and the pain and the problems. You'll find a joy in his love and grace. Last one is committed, growing Christians. You're on the right side of the fence. You've surrendered your life to Jesus. It's a daily process for all of us, isn't it? But, um, but there may be something that's going on in your life that's just been a challenge and you haven't been able to quite work it through. That's okay. We all have those things in our lives. And sometimes they're, they're seasonal. Sometimes they come up here and there. But if they're there, let's work it through. He's still wanting to be that in your life. I'm going to ask our pastoral staff if they'll just come to the sides of the, of the altar here. In church, we're going to have an altar time today. I'm going to invite you to come up. If, you, if you're needing to invite Jesus Christ into your life, come up and see one of our pastors. If it's a first-time thing for you to, to really make that step, step across the threshold and say, you know what? I'm ready to give my heart to Jesus. I'm ready to turn away from the life that I've been living and turn fully and completely to him so that he can begin to show me how, he design, how, I, should, how I was designed to live. So come and talk to one of our pastors here and they'll pray with you and, and show you how to, how to start that relationship. If you are on the fence, it's time to get off. It really is time to get off, church.
don't play the religious game. Don't play the, I'm with Jesus at church on Sunday morning and I'm in the world the rest of the week. Don't play that game. Jesus isn't playing it. He'll let you go, he'll let you live out the consequences of your choices and they won't be good consequences. You will be empty because you were designed for that lifestyle. We were all designed to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, to take on the fullness of his spirit and the fullness of his life. But we won't experience it until we are surrendered to him. So get off the fence. And the third point, you, you may just need to come to the altar. You love Jesus, you're following him, but there may be issues at home, at work, relationship things, struggles, changes, maybe some major decisions that are in your life. If that's you, just come and bring it to the altar. One of the things we don't do enough, church, is, we, is we're hearers of the word of God, but we're not doers of the word of God. And how we become doers is we apply what God has spoken into our lives, and we bring it, to the, we bring it right, to the, right to Jesus. We immediately take what he is speaking to us about, and we bring it immediately to him. So I want to pray a prayer, and after that prayer, I invite you to come. For whatever reason you're coming, if you need to talk to a pastor, we're here. If you need to pray with a pastor, we're here. Ken's over here. Whatever the issue might be, Jesus is ready to meet you. He's serious about your life. You need to be serious about your life. Okay, I'm going to pray a prayer. If you're not in any of those categories, feel free to leave. Nobody's, nobody's going to be watching saying, okay, what? They're leaving. They must not be committed to Jesus. That's not there, okay? Don't worry about that. But if you need to spend time with the Lord in whatever God's spoken to you about, don't worry about this. Praying praying with Chuck, okay? Think about yourself right now. Do I need the altar this morning? Do I need time with God? And if so, if not, if not one of the pastors, get with a friend that you trust and pray together with him. Jesus just spoke to me about this in my life tonight. This is what I need to work on. Okay, Lord Jesus, thank you for this service this morning. I thank you for these dear, precious people in our church. Thank you for the friends that are, that, uh, the visitors that have come as well. Each one holds a special spot in your heart. And I just pray that this morning you will take the words from this passage that as we consider the supremacy of Jesus Christ, that he is ruler and God over the whole universe, including us. That you were designed us with special purpose, with special plans, that we would live in a life situation given by only by you. We pray that that will take place in the lives of everyone here this, this morning. And we thank you for this now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, church, have a great week. If you need the altars, come on forward and pray. If you need somebody to pray with you, look for somebody. We'll be glad to pray with you. God bless you.